This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Exodus 21. One of the ways that we speak about profound spiritual moments in our lives is by describing them as mountaintop experiences. Perhaps you remember a mountaintop experience that you had at a youth camp or a specific night of a missions conference when you were a college student. Maybe God spoke to your heart in a profound way on a regular Sunday morning just like this. Or a unique time in your life you experienced revival. God's stirring in your heart, meeting with you. I've had multiple mountaintop experiences over the course of my life, but one of those actually happened on a mountain. It was just a couple of years ago, the summer of 2019. We had recently planted the Trails Church just nine months earlier when our new church caravaned up to Colorado and then filled up an entire side of Sky Ranch Horn Creek with a lot of people from our church. And over the course of that week, we built deeper relationships. We looked at what it looked like to to build deep marriages. We worshiped together. On the final night, we gathered at sunset around a bonfire and shared what God was doing in our hearts that week. We sang some hymns. We laughed and cried. We rehearsed how God was at work among us. And I remember in that moment being surrounded by my family and also by our church family and with this overwhelming uh, reality of the fact that I was part of the family of God. I know that sounds so simple, but I was overwhelmed by that. I can remember that like it was yesterday. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know that the Christian life is not a series of nonstop mountaintop experiences. Christianity is mostly lived as we walk the narrow road of righteousness through the flatlands of faithfulness and even through the valley of suffering. We're right to remember and look back and thank God for those summit spiritual moments, but we also must remember that we were redeemed so that we might know and walk with Jesus in the transforming power of the gospel in everyday life. Where we stand in our study of the book of Exodus is smack dab in the middle of the Israelites having the quintessential mountaintop experience. After God miraculously delivered them from bondage, he supernaturally led them through the desert to Mount Sinai. And it was on this mountain where they met with God. They saw his glory. They heard his voice in a profound way. And I've tried to put myself in the sandals of those shaking Israelites. And I wonder what they imagined might happen after this mountaintop experience. They were a fledgling nation with so much before them. There was still so much to learn about who God was, who they were, and what life looked like as a newly redeemed people. 
Still, God knew everything they needed. And as they stood in the shadow of Mount Sinai, he appeared to them, giving them his word in order to connect their understanding of who God is, their theology, with their daily life. The book of the covenant contained in Exodus 20 to 23 gives instruction on how the Israelites were to live as a redeemed people. They'd been set free from slavery and set free for the worship of God in all of life. So this set of instructions and laws and commands was a gift as God taught them how to live a consecrated life. These laws reveal something also of the character of our God. At the same time, they form his people to be a people who first love God and second, love one another. Since our passage spans three chapters, we're going to read just a small portion from two and then a chunk of one. So we'll be reading chapter 21, verse 1, and then following chapter 22, 31 to 23, 13. Would you please stand with me as we read together from God's holy and inerrant word. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. And now 22, beginning in 31. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many who do evil. You shall not bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. For six years you shall sow your land and gather its yield, but the seventh you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and that they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days shall you do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Before we look at the content of this passage itself, let me provide a preface to help us understand what the book of the covenant is. You've probably never heard a sermon on the book of the covenant. Well, here we are. This section of Exodus, beginning in chapter 20, verse 22, and reaching all the way to chapter 23, verse 23, receives its name 
from chapter 34 or 24. Exodus 24 verse 7 calls this portion of scripture the book of the covenant. And here we read that Moses read this list of laws and judgments and precepts recorded in these three chapters publicly to the people. He read them one by one, and they replied, All that the Lord has said, we will do, and we will be obedient. These chapters can be arranged in many different ways. I've provided this general outline of the ground that it covers from an Irish scholar named Desmond Alexander. I'll read through it. Chapter 20, verses 22 through 26, is the prologue, providing instructions on altars and sacrifice. And then you get into the actual laws. Chapters 21, verse 1 through 2220 are a series of legal judgments. Beginning in 21, extending to 23, 9, moral precepts. Chapter 23, verses 10 to 19, instructions on Sabbath feasts. And chapter 23, 20 to 33, promises and warnings concerning life in Canaan. Every covenant of this time comes at the very end with stipulations of blessings and curses if you do or do not keep the covenant. Lord willing, we'll get to that next week. The book of the covenant contains the first list of laws that God gave to his people through the mediation of Moses. Now, we're going to spend less time on this set of laws than we did on the Ten Commandments, where we went through them one by one each week. The reason being that some of you older saints might actually be with the Lord by the time we finished that study. (laughs) The rest of you who are still in the strength of your life would be considered older saints by the time we finished that. But the reason is not actually practical, it's theological. While there are certainly principles in these chapters that we can apply to our daily lives, these specific laws, these civil pronouncements and their legal penalties were given by God to a specific people for a specific time in a specific place. They were given to the nation of Israel as they went into the land of Canaan. Phil Riken adds, We must also understand that even in the days of Moses, the book of the covenant was never intended to address every possible situation. It was more a guide to the cases that would present themselves than a a statutory code. Whereas the Ten Commandments were expressed as universal absolutes, The laws in the book of the covenant deal with specific situations. Let me explain. There are two basic types of laws in these chapters. The first are called case laws. Uh, These case laws anticipate some future scenario by saying, if this happens or when that happens, and then it explains what should happen, like in 2128. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death. Do you know this word, gores to death? It's not not pretty. Then the ox shall be stoned. So that's a case law. The second type of law is an apodictic law. These are God speaking directly to his people, usually in the second person. Like in 2318, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened. So two major types, case laws, 
where if or when these things happen, here's the next step, or God speaking directly to his people, commanding them in a certain way. Now, some of these laws may seem strange as you look through them, such as, you shall not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. Why is that in the Bible? We'll get to that in a few minutes. That's 23.19. Other laws uh, might even uh, create a sense of uneasiness or even embarrassment, even in the heart of a Christian. Laws like 21.17. Whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. Or laws about slavery in chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. What's important for us to see is that in almost every law, we are faced with some expression of the depravity of mankind, sin being felt in the world, and the brokenness that that has created in our relationship with God. The fact that these laws are even here remind us that this holy nation, is what they were called back in 19, will not be a perfect people living in a perfect world. That won't come until much later in the story of Scripture. That's the day that even we long for now. So we've got a lot of ground to cover today. So I want to give you a summary of how we're going to work through these chapters. As we've done many times already in Exodus, we will use the, Old Te- the New Testament to help us understand the old, to help us interpret the old. In the Gospel of Matthew, the religious leaders are constantly trying to pin Jesus into a corner and get him to say something that he shouldn't. They never win. Matthew 22, 33 through 40, records one of those accounts. A lawyer from the Pharisee party asks Jesus a question in order to test him. He says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We're looking at the law right now. We're in the law right now in this portion of Exodus. And in Jesus' answer, we find a summary of the law. Love God and love one another. As I've studied this passage and prayed for you as a church There are many important side roads and alleyways that would do us spiritual good to to wander down together. But we simply don't have time for that today. I want us to keep our ear tuned to this one summary statement. God gave his people the book of the covenant so that they might live their entire lives as an act of worship as they love him and love one another. Let me repeat that. God gave his people the book of the covenant so that they might live their entire lives as an act of worship as they love him and one another. So there's our heading. Now are you ready to get to work? Okay. The beginning and the end of the book of the covenant both contain instructions on worship. Or to use different language, they teach God's people how to love him. Let's look at loving God. Chapter 20, verses 22 through 26 is the first bookend. 
The second is chapter 23, verses 10 through 19. These intentionally placed bookends show that worship is the most fundamental issue of God's people from beginning to end. And they reveal that everything in between these should also be seen through the lens of worship, of bringing honor and glory to God. We studied the prologue to the book of the covenant last week. That was chapter 20, verses 22 through 26. We highlighted the fact that before God gave his people any specific laws for living, he addressed them on the subject of worship. In those opening verses, we heard an echo of the first two of the Ten Commandments, giving us a much-needed reminder that as God's people, we must worship the right God in the right way, on his terms. So now let's look at the other bookend, located in Exodus 23, verses 10 to 19. Again, this reinforces the importance of worship by giving the people one application, which is in regard to the Sabbath command, and then a list of three feasts that they are to keep. So first, let's look at this Sabbath application. Chapter 23, verse 12, contains a repetition of the fourth commandment. Six days shall you labor, the seventh is the Lord's. In six days God made the earth and all the heavens, but he rested on the seventh. Similarly, God's people are to set aside one day in seven for worship and rest, to rest from work. Notice in the verse that precedes that, 23.11, there's a specific application of the Sabbath command applied to the land. Six years, they had to work their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, planting and tending and gathering. And then on the seventh year, they're to let the field rest and allow the poor to gather whatever grows naturally there so that they're provided for. And after the poor have all they need, the animals are given the right to come and just eat the rest. So this is so remarkable to me. God gives his people what they need in giving them rest. He gives the land what it needs in giving it rest, while at the same time providing for those who are in great need, all at the same time. This is how God's laws work. They provide for people. So we see a Sabbath application. And then there are three feasts mentioned just as the weekly schedule of God's people revolved around him, centered around him, that's what the Sabbath day is, so the entire calendar of the year is centered around God. There are three feasts that God instructs his people to keep as sacred days of worship and remembrance. There's a feast of unleavened bread in 2315. This was observed in the springtime. It was when Israel remembered their redemption from Egypt. It was combined with the feast of the Passover. There are two kind of feasts that go together. We read about that in Exodus chapter 13. The Passover is a shared meal where people eat unleavened bread because they remember how quickly the Lord took them out of Egypt that night. Not even time for the bread to rise. Uh, They take bitter herbs, remembering the 400 years of bitter slavery that they endured in Egypt. They eat lamb, a spotless lamb whose blood was shed, remembering the spotless lamb that was killed that night and then the blood put over the doorposts as the angel of death swept through and 
passed over the people of God. That's the first feast. The second one is mentioned in 2316. It's known by multiple names. The Feast of Harvest, the Feast of First Fruits, and the Feast of Weeks. This celebration happens in early summer with multiple offerings given, including two loaves of leavened bread representing fullness, and they would wave these before the Lord. We read about this in Leviticus 23, 9 to 21. 50 days after the beginning of this feast, the whole congregation of Israel would gather together for a sacred day of worship. The Feast of Ingathering is the third. We find this also in 2316. A week-long celebration at the end of the year after the last stalk of grain had been threshed, after every olive in the orchard had been pressed, after every grape in the vineyard had been squeezed. Like our Thanksgiving, it looked back and gave thanks to God for his provision throughout the year. During that week, Israel made portable homes made of sticks and leaves to live in to remember the years that they lived in the wilderness, the time we're looking at right now, where people, they didn't have homes. They traveled, building their homes, taking them down. And then notice the final verse of this section, verse 19. I mentioned this earlier. You shall not boil a goat in its mother's milk. So that command might seem out of place at first. My junior year of high school, my chemistry teacher told me the reason for this is because if you boil a baby goat in its mother's milk, it makes the meat become poisonous. If there's a chemist in the house, please tell me if that's true or not. I have no idea. What I do know for sure is what happened at this time is the Canaanites had an ancient uh, fertility ritual they're praying to the gods so that they would have children. And as a, as a means to celebrate and to praise their gods, they boiled a baby goat in its mother's milk. And so what we have here, the reason this is included in these, these uh, laws about worship is, again, we've seen, haven't we seen this again and again? The worship of Yahweh is supposed to look nothing like the worship of the pagan gods around them. That's what's happening there. And maybe it gets poisoned, I don't know. Okay, well, what about us? These are laws given to a specific people, specific place, at a specific time. We're no longer required to keep any of these feasts because they've all been fulfilled in Jesus. But there's a principle here of us being a God-centered people that does remain. And while we no longer bring offerings of sacrifice, none of you showed up with a lamb today, right, to worship the Lord. Thank you for not doing that. No, because that's all been fulfilled in the once-for-all final sacrifice of Christ. Still, the Apostle Paul exhorts us to this love of God, this centering our entire lives around the glory of Jesus. He says in Romans 12:1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I told you last week, there's not a text we're looking at in Exodus that's in the foreseeable future that doesn't teach us about worship. Here's what I want you to see right now before we move on. As we grow as worshipers of Jesus, and I pray we do that in the coming months, I want to also make sure, we're to, as a litmus test for this, to make sure we're growing in our love for him. 
This is the center of the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. There's a love for God that is the right response to him from his people, particularly the people that he's redeemed. If you're in Christ, that's you. The second major emphasis of the book of the covenant teaches the Israelites to love one another. The worship that God desired was not just on the Sabbath day or during seasonal feasts. The Lord was to be the center of every aspect of his people's lives. This is where mountaintop faith meets daily life. The verses here cover all aspects of life, from capital crimes to compensation for personal injury, property damage, money lending, the administration of justice. Yet behind each law is God's instruction for his people to love one another. Now, I just need to tell you, I'm going to give you this disclaimer. We're going to cover a lot of verses right now, like in the next four minutes. And there's going to be a verse or two that jumps off the page and sparks interest in you. And you wonder, I wonder why we didn't talk more about that. And I just want to say, if that happens in you, that is an opportunity for discipleship. To keep in your word and do that work this week. We don't have time to cover everything. I'm just going to do a, a highlight of what's happening here. And then I want you to continue to be a people like good Bereans. Dig in this word. Grow where you want to grow. So here we are. First, how do we love one another? What do these instructions teach God's people? First, that God's people are to honor all human life. Honor all human life. The first category of laws, this begins in chapter 21, verse 1. The first category we find addresses the treatment of slaves. Now that is a surprising way to begin a law code, a book of law that would govern the lives of people, isn't it? It doesn't seem right unless you step back and think about the major theme of the book of Exodus. This has been all about God delivering an enslaved people from slavery and setting them free for worship. Um, the slavery in view here is not the kind we find in antebellum America. We see clearly in 2116, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So the Bible condemns slavery. The sort of slavery, or this word could rightly be translated bondservant or just servant, in the time of Moses, this kind of slavery was voluntary. It's more like a contract worker who becomes a bondservant for some reason, either because they can't provide for themselves or their family, or they've incurred so much debt they can't provide for it, and you couldn't, there was no city card at the time. You gotta pay back the person you borrowed from. And so these people would hire themselves into service and they agreed to these terms. It was voluntary. Second, it was temporary. At the end of six years, this person is commanded to go free, to go free. The situation even foresees conditions being so good in the relationship between uh, the, the servant and their master 
that he would love him so much he would choose to stay. We see a ceremony here where the ear is pierced of this person and he chooses out of love to stay and continue to serve. As we approach verses seven through 11, we would have to travel deep into ancient Near East wedding practices to unpack everything that's going on here. And I can tell by your faces, you don't have an hour for that. What I want you to see is that if we explored the code of Hammurabi and some of the other ancient neighboring things, the compassion of God is seen everywhere on these pages. Uh, in the way these servants were to be treated and particularly in verses seven through 11 with women. God places a high value on women's lives. Uh, the woman mentioned here is not forced to do hard labor like a man would, would be required. She could be redeemed and return home. She was not allowed to be given to another person, foreign people. If she becomes married to either the owner or someone from his family, remember this is the days of arranged, primarily arranged marriages, she's to be treated as a daughter and provided for in every way so that she lacks nothing. You can't see that from the first reading of the text, but it is all there, God's care for women. In verses 12 through 32, we find a series of laws protecting the lives of all people from murder. And what this does is highlight the value of human life over everything else, over everything else in the order of creation. These are case laws, like we talked about earlier, applying the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, to a lot of different People, slaves, men, women, even the unborn are protected by the law of God. Chapter 21, verse 23. God protects even the unborn because it is a life that he has made. The same way that we cannot make life, we're not given the authority to take life. Then the law of Talion is laid out, verses 23 through 25. That might be new language to you, the law of Talion, but I bet this is familiar an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Anybody heard that before? This is where that comes from. What's happening there is God's laying out this principle. Does that sound savage? It sounds pretty savage to us. I remember Gandhi saying, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. That's nonsense. What's happening here is God is showing his wisdom that if you sin against someone, uh, the the penalty, the punishment for that sin must be equal with what you did, not more and not less. So if you stole from somebody, you can't be put to death. That's what these laws say. You've just got to pay it back. But if you kill someone, it will be life for life. Okay? So the honoring of all human life. Second, God's people are to make things right. This is such, there's so much depth and nuance and cultural things to consider here. I wanted to make these points as simple as possible. God's people are to make things right. Like, leave things better than you found them. How many of you have that sort of in your family motto? You, you can start that today. Kids, let's leave this living room better than we found it. Here we discover a series of laws about what to do when someone causes injury to another person, whether intentionally or unintentionally. In every case, the Lord teaches his people the very lesson that my mom taught me. Go and make it right. 
If you do something wrong against someone else, go and make it right. They're to pay back any damage they cause. So these illustrations in these verses, if you're reading ahead, they are ancient sounding to us. But these were contemporary illustrations for them. If a man dug a pit and someone's animal fell in it and died, he should pay for that animal. If your ox gets out and gores someone, there it is again, uh, you got to put that ox down. If a person steals a sheep or an ox or any possession, he should pay it back with interest. If you accidentally set fire to someone's field, burning their crops, you should pay for that. Um, let's, those are ancient. Let's give some modern applications, shall we? So if I borrow your truck and I accidentally run into somebody, who should pay that deductible? Me. If I um, accidentally knock over your brand new um, AirPod, no, what's it like a, what is it, iPad, something expensive. What's an expensive piece of technology? iPad, that's good. Cell phones, and I break it. Who should pay for that? Me. Or Apple Care, but me. I'm responsible for doing that. This is just like in the New Testament, the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Pretty simple, right? That's the overarching principle of all of these rules. Honor the Lord. Make things right. If you've wronged someone, make it right. Finally, God's people are to be holy and compassionate. <clears throat> to be holy and compassionate. This begins in chapter 22, beginning in verse 16, extending all the way to 23.9. And this covers a lot of ground. Before I even talk about any of that, I want to call your attention to 2231. I think this is the summary of the entire book of the covenant. These few words. If you've heard nothing else that I've said, what do these few chapters mean? Kids, what do these chapters mean? This is it. You shall be consecrated to me. God's telling his people that they must be set apart, different than the world. They must be holy. Remember, he's called them a kingdom of priests that serve God. He's already called them a holy nation. And now he's saying, you must be the things that I've already proclaimed you to be. You must be consecrated. We see this in, in the case if a man seduces a woman. He's got to make that right. He's not supposed to do that. He's supposed to be holy and above reproach. Uh, we're called to be holy and compassionate in how we lend our money. The Bible talks about lending to a poor person and further making them, pushing them into poverty. Says, don't do that. That's not a way of holy living. It instructs the Israelites not to show favoritism toward the poor in 23.3, nor to show favoritism against the poor in 23.6, calling us to this a vision of a, like our culture loves to talk about social justice and has no idea what that means. But the Bible presents a form of biblical justice that we're called to. It says to let justice be blind in all of its applications. 
for God's people to be both holy before God and compassionate toward other people. And I want you to notice this in 23. In verse 4, notice how far the compassion of God's people are supposed to go. If you meet your enemy's ox, whose ox? Not your brother, not your friend, your enemy's ox. You shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of the one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue your enemy. Well, that sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Who laid down his life to rescue his enemies. That was you and me, by the way. Enemies of God. Christ laid down his life to make us sons and daughters. There's a motivating reason that God calls his people to show compassion to others. It's in 22, 25 through 27. He, he uses this, this example. He says, if you take your neighbor's only cloak, so his, his coat, it's the thing that he sleeps with at night to keep warm. If you take that as a pledge because he owes you money, you shouldn't do that. Don't go that far. Why? Because then at night he'll be cold and he'll cry out to God and God will hear him and God says, I will have compassion on him. And then God's anger turns toward us. As I read that, I, I, I just, I couldn't help but think of Exodus 2 when the children of Israel were cold and lacking everything. They were slaves held against their will. And what did they do? They cried out to God. He heard their cry. He saw their condition. He remembered his covenant and he knew. With compassion, he turned his heart toward his people. To think of these commands in another way, the way that God's teaching his children to love one another is like this. It's through antithesis. He's saying the way that you were treated in Egypt, don't ever treat people that way. Don't ever treat people that way. So thinking about sojourners, these are people who aren't from their country that now are there. He says, hey, for those sojourners in 23.9, don't oppress those people. And then he, he pushes to the motivational reason for why you shouldn't oppress those people. You know the heart of a sojourner. You were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Okay, so to be a holy and compassionate people. While we're no longer under these laws given to this specific people for a specific time in a specific place, doesn't it sound a lot like the command of Christ for us to love one another? There are 59 one another passages in the New Testament that teach us, the children of God, how to love one another. For homework, I'd encourage you, start searching the New Testament just find five of them. A lot of us, it would do just one would do good. We could learn one practice of how to love one another. What's a new way we could learn to love one another? Again, I'd like you to turn to the Apostle Paul. I mentioned earlier Romans 12.1. And here, I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. I believe this passage summarizes for us the importance of of loving one another right here, right now. How do we take these ancient laws and place them in the New Testament context of the gospel? 
This is how the Apostle Paul teaches us. Notice where he's drawing from in the imagery he uses. Beginning in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. In what ways are you growing in your love for others? Next week, Lord willing, we will look at the epilogue of the book of the covenant. I, I tried to do it today, but I've already, I, we're, we're like three hours into this sermon. And so um, we'll look at the book of the covenant at the very end of it. But for today, I want to just stop here and just remind you what we've heard already. The book of the covenant gives instruction to the Israelites on how they are to live as a redeemed people. They were given a mountaintop experience followed by the set of instructions that would teach them how to live a consecrated life in their everyday life. You and I, if you're in Jesus, we've been given great salvation in Christ. And we've also been given instruction, the Bible, the very living word of God to help teach us to live as a consecrated people, holy and acceptable to the Lord, not to earn his approval, but because we've already been given it. Let's pray for his help, that we would be a holy people before him. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for every word that comes from your mouth. And I, I pray that you would give us understanding, even in difficult passages, and you'd give us the wisdom and grace how to hear from your word. And together we praise Christ who has fulfilled the law's just demands and won for us such a wonderful salvation. Give us grace and, and oh God, would we grow in our love for you and in our love for each other. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.